navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. All right, so I'm going to get to it, and um, today we're going to talk about mediation, when to mediate, why to mediate, how to mediate, who to mediate with, when you're in the media, how to prepare for mediation, strategies in the mediation to get your side of the case the best results that you are hoping to get. So obviously, it's a lot of stuff to get through, and uh, I will try and do my best as always, and um First, we're going to talk about when to mediate. All right, so good group of you. We've got uh, over 100 people participating who have not mediated cases. So uh, I think you'll find some really great value uh, in today's program. And if you have experience, like anything else, if you take away one tidbit from today, then it's worthwhile. It helps you. So when to mediate. As you know from my series, which I believe most of you uh, have uh, participated in, at least at some point, I'm a big fan of pushing for resolution of your case always from before filing suit, early resolution, while the case is litigating, all the way up until you're about to pick a jury. Uh, You should always be trying to settle your case. And even when you're on trial, you should try and settle your case. And when a jury's out deliberating, you should try and settle the case. And after it comes in. So that's what we do as lawyers, whether you're representing plaintiffs or defendants, our goal for our clients is to get the case resolved. And settlement is a great way to do it. And mediation is a great way to get your case resolved. I'm a huge fan of mediation. Been mediating cases since uh, mediation started a long time ago, uh, but it wasn't always around. Many of you know that the whole concept of mediation was new probably about 25 years ago. And uh, it just to become what it's developed into today is quite something. And uh, I've always said that I think that mediation, alternative dispute resolution, binding arbitrations is the new wave of how we're all going to litigate. It's going to be more efficient cost-wise, time-wise, getting our cases resolved. So when to mediate, okay? Uh, Obviously, you can't mediate when you're on trial, and you can't mediate some do, you know, the night before you start jury selection, but generally mediation is done before you're getting uh, close to starting a trial. And you can mediate a case before a lawsuit is even filed uh, and at any point in the case. So for me, I'm always pushing, always, always, always. From the minute I have contact, I've sent out a claim letter, I get a call from the uh, insurance representative, the claims adjuster, uh, calls me up. We're talking about the case. Depending on the case, I may say, hey, is this something you guys are interested in doing in early mediation? You know, we're going to file suit. Uh, we can't resolve the case. Uh, and I usually like to give a deadline, you know, within 30 days. Uh, but if you'd like to mediate and agree to set it up, I'll hold off on filing suit if we have an agreement to mediate in place. Um, and sometimes you can get a case resolved without even having to file a lawsuit. Uh, Otherwise, once the litigation starts, I have found that usually the best time to mediate a case is after all sides sort of have what they really need to properly assess a case. And it's going to be very fact specific. For example, if it's a rear end auto accident case and um, the injury is very clear, very causally connected, Uh, and they're not treating anymore. Or better yet, let's say a car runs a stoplight, witnesses everyone, the driver admits, I didn't see it was a red light. They run over a a client, client breaks an arm, has surgery, surgery goes well, um, really not much more treatment or therapy needed. In that type of scenario, there's not much that litigation that you're going to learn in discovery or, you know, or, or you need to assess the case. You know the injury, you know the liability, you know there's probably not much else going on there, and you can mediate that right away. But what if in that scenario, it's a he said, she said accident, and, um, and someone's badly injured in it, but there's issues as to liability. 
Uh, you're probably going to want to do the depositions first before mediation. Let's say someone has a spinal fusion, but they had prior back issues. That's in one of the cases that I've been talking about that uh, I have in the sample materials we'll get to that we mediated and successfully resolved. But there was an issue of causation. So if that's the case, uh, I would imagine that uh, the defense uh, is going to want to have their doctors evaluate your client, the injured party. Uh, if not your actual client, certainly get the films and the records and the prior medical records. So ultimately, you as a plaintiff and you as a defendant are going to have to say, do we have what we need uh, to fairly assess this case, to size it up on damages, liability, and causation? And once you feel on your side that you have everything, then you should reach out about mediation if you want to try and get your case resolved. And if you're not sure, what I always do is I'm always asking the insurance company or my adversary on the defense side, you want to mediate? Let's mediate. Let's try and get this case resolved. And usually the defense side, they'll say, well, I don't know, maybe early. We might need some more information. And I'll say, all right, what do you need? I'll get it for you. Well, we need an IME, but you know we haven't even done depositions yet. So the IME usually won't happen for six months. And I'll say, you want an IME? Set it up right now. We'll do it early. Let's go. Um, you need medical records? I'll get them to you. Um, you want to do get the deposition going now? So on the plaintiff side, we need to be proactive because that's the only way we're going to get our clients' cases resolved. And by doing that, by you know telling your adversary on the defense side, hey, we want to mediate. What do you need? We'll give it to you. We'll give you our theory of the case. We'll give you jury verdict search reports on values if you need that. Um, we'll give you an early IME. Uh, what do you need? That's all you need to ask. What do you need to mediate the case? Ask your adjuster. And on the defense side, uh, you should also be looking to mediate early. I, I can't say this enough. I always stress this in all of my CLEs that I think the defense side of the bar, and perhaps it's on the insurance carrier side, uh, not asking their lawyers to do it, is missing out on a great opportunity to settle cases early. You're going to save money on your lawyer's fees. You're going to save money on experts. You're going to save money on trial. You're probably going to get a better result because uh, when you mediate early, both sides have to realize that there is discounting values because you're doing it so early and you're saving the time. So on the defense side, you can get out for out of a case for less than you're going to get later in the day. And I, you know, I'm always pressing. And then finally, at the end of the day, we get the case resolved. And I'll either say to the defense lawyer, I'll think to myself, if only they had mediated this earlier, we would have accepted less. It would have been before we beat up their experts or before we did the deposition and before we got summary judgment. So when to mediate is as soon as you are ready on your side and the other side is ready, uh, you should mediate and you should really push, push to get it done, okay? Because mediation is a way to take it out of the uncertainty, out of letting the judges decide on motions and the jury decide on trial. And there's reasons both the plaintiff and the defense want to settle a catastrophic injury cases. These are usually big damages cases. So the defense is always going to be worried, you know, this paralyzed person goes before a jury, this person who lost a leg, this person who's had their spine fused with hardware and can't do anything or has a big economic loss. A jury may be sympathetic. And even though we have good defense arguments, who knows what a jury is going to do? Maybe they're not going to listen and they're just going to throw money at this plaintiff. So maybe we should not let a jury decide our fate and settle this case within a number that we think is decent and uh, under our own control. The plaintiff um, may think that they can get a huge verdict on a big injury, but you may have causation issues. There may be liability issues. And you can't think that just because you have a badly injured plaintiff that you can get over the hump of the problem that you have or the problems and that a jury is going to give money. Um, we all know of cases where badly injured people or horrible death cases um, have been defense verdicts. So depending on your venue, depending on, uh, on, on the jury that you get, you just don't know what can happen. So why leave it to chance if you can get a good resolution for your side? 
So mediation is really good for that. Uh, it's the opportunity for both sides, the plaintiff side and the defense, to protect themselves, to control their destiny. And if each gives a little bit, defense pays maybe a little bit more than they want, or the plaintiff takes less than what they want, uh, but they're still both within what they both feel are reasonable ranges for the case. It's just a win-win. I always tell my clients, I say, juries are wild cards. You know, I'm a good trial lawyer. I can put on a great trial and make the best arguments, but it doesn't mean a jury is going to agree with me. Uh, the same exact case that I put in, I could have one jury finding in our favor and we can lose to another jury. And all you got to do, go walk out on your street in your neighborhood and take a look at six random people and let me know if you feel comfortable with them resolving your case. Um, and chances are you're not going to feel too comfortable. So if we can get you a good resolution, let's mediate. And that's why I'm always a proponent and how I explain it to my clients. Okay. You can control your own destiny. Now, Let's get to some basics. What is mediation? Now, I know a third of you haven't had experience mediating, and many of you do, and you know what mediation is, so bear with me. Uh, but I think it's important that we all have this sort of same platform to talk about it. Mediation is an out-of-court alternative dispute resolution where the sides, uh, different sides uh, to a litigation in a case can agree to, outside of the court system, uh, go to a private mediator or a court mediator, we'll talk about that, and see if you can get the case settled. Uh, nothing that happens in the mediation is allowed. It's all confidential. It's not allowed to come back uh, and be brought out at trial. It's not allowed to be thrown in each other's faces with the judges or with each other. The numbers are what they are at mediation. And once mediation, if the case doesn't settle, you just go back to where you were at whatever stage in the case you're at. So mediation is an opportunity for both sides to try and reach a settlement, but it's not binding. There's no arbitrator making a decision like in a high-low arbitrator where you can, in essence, ask the mediator to be an arbitrator and both sides can submit what they agree to submit and the arbitrator can come back with a finding of a value. You can do high-low parameters. We've talked about that. But mediation, uh, it's non-binding. The mediator's job is solely to try and facilitate. Mediator is not going to decide anything. It's usually a retired judge who's a mediator who has an ex who has experience from the courts uh, dealing with litigants, uh, or a lawyer who just have has experience and training in training and how to mediate cases. There's private mediations, and then there's court mediations. Private mediations happen through solo mediators that run their own mediation business or companies like an academy sponsor, NAM, a National Arbitration and Mediation Services, many of us know. Uh, they have a roster of mediators and arbitrators. And um, so there are private companies and private mediators who you can hire if both sides agree. And then there are court mediators. And uh, depending on which courthouse you're in, Sometimes you will have to go through a process of mediation. In New York County, there's a mediation part before you go to trial. And they have very skilled mediators there that can help resolve the case. You don't have to pay anything for it. Uh, in the federal courts, uh, many of the districts have mandatory mediation for certain types of cases where you have to mediate uh, at certain points in the case. And it becomes part of your case scheduling order as an end date for mediation. And you get a roster and you select a mediator that all sides agree on. And then that mediator, uh, you still pay, uh, but it's subsidized heavily. Um, so it's not as much as going to a private mediation. All right. So that's how mediation, that's what mediation is. And the key factors are, it's not binding. There's no testimony. There's no evidence. People are worried, do I have to question my client? Do I have to question an adverse witness? Is the, is the mediator gonna ask my client question? Uh, plaintiffs always ask me, uh, do I have to speak? What's, what's my involvement? Am I questioned by anybody? Um, and the answer is no. Mediation is just, you can have your client involved to the extent that you'd like to. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment more, but for the most part, it's the lawyers and the mediator going all back and forth and trying to get to a settlement. So uh, you can submit your papers in advance, sometimes confidentially, sometimes it's worth sharing and non-confidential. So that's something that happens in a mediation. You're not submitting evidence, but you will submit 
uh, most likely on a serious case, like a catastrophic automobile accident case, you are going to submit position papers, usually a week in advance. And then mediations can be done in person or on Zoom. Prior to the pandemic, they were all done uh, almost uniformly in person. Uh, everybody would meet up usually in a conference room to start. Mediator would do introductions. Everybody would talk about their case with a little opening statement. And then everybody would go into their separate rooms and the mediator would bounce back and forth with the different parties and try and broker a deal. These days, since the pandemic, the majority of mediations have been by Zoom, and I love it. And from what I gather, most people are loving it on the defense and plaintiff side. The insurance company is in London. It's in California. Their lawyers are in New York. A litigant lives in another state. It's really easy to schedule now. Everybody gets on a Zoom. The mediators are skilled at doing breakout rooms. So the plaintiffs in one room, the defendants in other rooms, they can put the clients in another room, they jump back and forth. It's fantastic, it's efficient, so much better time-wise for everybody, and I'm a big fan of it. So that's in essence what mediation is, okay? That's what it is, and that's how you go about it. It's very easy. If you wanna mediate a case, you reach out to your adversary, uh, and you say, hey, you want to mediate this case and try and settle it? And if they say yes. You say, who do you like to use? You call up either NAM or a different, different mediation company if you've worked with them or individual mediators if you've worked with them and, uh, and see if everybody agrees. You sign a document, you pick a date, and then you go, okay? Um, now, how do you select the mediator, all right? You're either going to select a mediator through private or if it's court ordered. So in the state courts, you're not selecting a mediator. In federal courts, they'll order you to go to mediation. And then you have a roster of mediators. You're given a list. Uh, it's available on the court's websites. And depending on whether you know the mediators or not, you still have to agree with your adversary. So you look through the list. If you see mediators you've worked with before and you've had good experiences with, then you want to select them. If you look through that list of a court-ordered mediation and you don't recognize any names, then you start working the emails and the phones and you reach out to Michelle uh, in the academy. One of the great things, at least in New York State, is we have lawyers from all over the state. And so perfect example, um, I have a mediation that was court-ordered. We did it last month. We're coming back next week. And my case is in the Northern District of New York, up in the Albany area, which is not my local venue. And so the list of mediators that work with the Northern District, I didn't recognize anybody. So I looked down the list and then I sent it to my colleagues in the academy that practice in that area and asked them for recommendations. And I got multiple different recommendations, who people liked, who to stay away from, who's good, all of that. And then you reach out to your adversary and say, I'd be willing to work with these. Who do you, who, would you be willing to work with one of them? And ultimately you find out and then you go for it and you try it out. If it's a private mediation, let's say you want to work with NAM and uh, all sides agree. Uh, then I always ask my adversary, who do you like to work with? And I tell them, here's who I like to work with. Here, who's, this is who I've had experience with. Um, I always try, my first choice is to select a mediator who I've had experience with, who I've mediated cases with. And there are several now over the years who I've mediated many cases with, who I trust. I can tell them things that I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable telling another mediator. I know how they work. I know that they're gonna read every bit of my argument. I know, uh, I know how my client will react to them. So first option is pick a mediator that you know and trust. Second, ask around for people for recommendations. Um, that's the best way to agree on which mediator. And sometimes you can try somebody new if, if no one's worked with them, but they have a good reputation for doing a good job. There's nothing wrong with trying somebody new. And then there may be different mediators for different cases. In a catastrophic automobile accident case, if the issues are complex, multiple parties, coverage issues, um, causation issues, there may be a mediator who I know might be better with dealing with complex issues. If there's a mediator who I've had before who really didn't want to get into the complex issues and read the cases and read the law 
and and make give a give forceful opinions that they had, um, then I may not use them. Uh, I may bring a different case that isn't as complex. So think about that. Think about the type of case. Uh, think about who you've worked with before, and um, and if you don't know the mediator ask around because somebody will, and there's lots of ways to do your homework and find out. And then that's how you'll decide. Also schedule sometimes. Some mediator you may want to work with, but doesn't have an opening for four months. It's happening these days. A lot of people are mediating. These mediators calendars book up pretty fast. So you may say, well, I'd prefer to work with that mediator, but I don't want to wait four months. I want to get this case resolved. And this person has an opening next month. Let's go for it. Another thing to consider is, do you have a difficult client? Um, Again, I do plaintiff's work, so I can't talk about difficult clients on the uh, insurance defense side, Um, but I'll have clients that sometimes think I'm crazy. Oh, I can get so much more money. I've got a great case. They know better than me. And I hear you. I hear you. We'll see what happens, but you know they're going to be difficult. Sometimes you want to think, who's a good mediator? that my client will listen to. And sometimes I like to go with the older retired judges who are mediators because some clients uh, or plaintiffs or litigants, if they come in, hi, I'm judge so-and-so and you've got a great lawyer and here's what I see and here are the issues. Sometimes they would need to hear it from someone other than you. So I've brought some difficult clients in for specific mediators who I think would be really good at handling my clients. Other times, if if there's a mediator that doesn't have as good a a manner with clients, I won't use that mediator. So there's lots of options and there's plenty of mediators out there to choose from. So once you choose the mediator, you get a contract signed, usually one or two page brief agreement to mediate, you get some dates and you get it on the books. Still got a lot to go here, so I'm going to try it and plow through it. Um, All right. Preparing for the mediation. What's my mantra? Preparation, preparation, preparation in everything we do, everything we do. And certainly you need to prepare for mediation. You can't just show up and say, oh, this mediator is going to do all the work. Hopefully the case will settle. So a couple of things we're going to talk about and how to prepare for mediation. First thing we're going to talk about is position papers. Second thing we're going to talk about is doing a settlement value analysis of your case in advance. Third thing we're going to talk about is reaching out to your adversary before the mediation, your adversary before the mediation. And then the fourth thing is meeting with your client before the mediation to prepare. So let's talk about it. Position papers. That is what I've included in my materials. After you see my podcast photos and CV, I gave you two samples of very recent uh, mediation position papers. I was going to share my screen and go through them with you, but I will leave you to do that after this. Let's stay focused on what we have to talk about in the remaining time. I'm going to tell you what those position papers are and what they need to contain. Both of the papers I gave you, the first one uh, involves a, it was a federal court case, mandatory mediation. I did not know the mediator, Anthony DiCaprio, uh, and he ended up being excellent. And he got the case resolved. And I'd be very happy to work with him. Again, that was in a catastrophic situation where a tractor trailer rear-ended my client, badly injured his back. He had multiple surgeries and fusion on his back, lots of loss of income, pain and suffering, and all of that. All right. The other one is a death case where um, our client's decedent was pulling out onto a main road and was hit by a uh, dump truck carrying loads of asphalt, I believe, and killed. And so both of those are are confidential. uh, And so they're submitted to the mediator only, for the mediator's eyes only. And both of those address, as all position papers should, the key issues in the case, okay? The key issues in the case. Generally speaking, Every position paper, you should do one for every case. Send it to the mediator, get it to them at least a week in advance uh, so that they have it. Most mediators will take time and review your position papers, some of them extremely thoroughly. Others won't. I like to work with the ones that when I show up, I find out that they haven't really read my papers because I spend a lot of time, as everyone in my firm does, 
and the purpose of your position papers, you have to remember who your audience is. It is the mediator. That especially when you're doing it confidentially. If there's an agreement that everybody's going to share their position papers, which sometimes you want to do, so the other side sees where you're coming from and you can see theirs, then you want the effect to be a little different, not just on the mediator, but on your adversary. For the most part, position papers are usually confidential. And so your audience is the mediator, okay? So what you want to do is you need to give the mediator enough information for that mediator to be effective in resolving the case. So you definitely want to give a brief factual overview of the case, who your client is, who the parties are. You'll see in our position papers, we usually have a section that addresses um, facts, the parties. You know, give the mediator the lay of the land, especially if there's multiple parties. Uh, if I'm in a case and I've got a driver, I've got another vehicle, I've got a company, we've got a private uh, defense lawyer involved, let them know who the different players are. Okay, um, spend your time to prepare to do it right. So you wanna lay out the facts of the case in a concise manner. You wanna lay out the liability in the case, the damages, okay? Causation, if that's an issue, you wanna address that. You wanna really focus on whatever issues are in dispute. You'll see in the two samples I gave you in the first where it's a rear end tractor case, uh, there was a, a stipulation of liability. So liability wasn't the issue. The issue was causation because he had prior back injuries uh, and damages because how much was related to this accident as far as injury and damages. So I really focused in on talking about causation on future impact on work, life and economic loss and all of that. In the second case, um, the real issue was on liability. Uh, they were blaming, the defense was blaming our Clients deceded for pulling out and making a left. It was all his fault. And we we're saying, no, no, we have a dump truck that we say is going too fast, should have seen our client and pulled into the opposite lane to try and avoid. And that's where the accident happened. If he had stayed in his lane and put on the brakes and not been speeding, the accident never would have happened. So we had both sides had accident reconstruction experts and liability was a really big issue. So you'll see in the sample there, we really drilled down on those issues. Um, you want to talk about if there's any liens in the case. Mediators need to know that. You don't want to leave that out. And it turns out you're mediating a case and you're trying to get a million dollars, but there's a $300,000 lien that no one's really talked about or realized is an issue. So you want to put any liens or other uh, issues that may not be known in there. I like to include anticipated arguments uh, from my adversary. I'll put in, we expect the defense is going to argue it's all pre-existing. However, if you look at X, Y, and Z, and you make your argument, remember, it doesn't do you any good if all you're doing is trying to convince a mediator that you've got the best side of the case. Because the minute you're done with that, the mediator is going to read the other party's papers or go in to speak with them and say, oh, the plaintiff didn't mention this, that you said, uh, you know, it's got a criminal record and, and you think that's an issue. So... If you think you know what your adversary is going to argue, uh, bring that out in your papers to the mediator. Give your mediator your position on your adversary argument. That's going to help a lot. It's okay to talk about what you believe are the strengths in your case, what you believe are the weaknesses in your case. Again, this is just going to the mediator, and the mediator is not allowed to share it with anyone else without your consent. It's confidential. It will help the mediator uh, know what he or she is dealing with as far as the facts and the issues on both sides, uh, strengths and weaknesses that both sides have in assisting you to get to a resolution, okay? Give the procedural posture of the case in your position papers. Let the mediator know, um, we're on the trial calendar, all discovery is complete. Let the mediator know, if the case doesn't settle this mediation, we're scheduled to pick a jury the following week. Let the mediator know, we haven't done discovery, We've all agreed to mediate this case in a good faith effort to resolve it in lieu of litigation, because that all makes a difference on values, on information. You know, if you're ready for trial, you've done all the motions, you've gotten all the discovery. Uh, if you're early on in the case, then maybe depositions or IMEs haven't been done, and that's going to be an issue. So you want to give all of this. You want to put your demand or your offer, put that in there. You'll see in our papers, we always say what our demand is, what the offer is, if any. Okay, so you're going to give all that information in the position papers, and you want to make them strong, you want to make them tight and concise, 
so that the mediator, whose job it is to read these papers, will have a really good sense of your arguments, that you don't have to uh, reiterate everything. You can get right to it at the time of the mediation, okay? So work hard on your position papers. Have someone else read them. Uh, if you're in a firm with partners or associates, bounce it by all of them, get their take on it. They may say, well, you didn't mention this, or what about that, or this reads well, or this is a little confusing. Uh, get a fresh set of eyes on your mediation papers, okay? And if you don't have someone, then, you know, call up a colleague, reach out to me, ask if you can send it to me, and, and I'm more than happy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very generous with my time to help everybody out. I'll take a look at it, but have another set of eyes on it, but spend some time on your mediation papers. It's important. Next thing you want to do as far as preparation is have an honest evaluation of your case, all right? And by honest, I mean, don't be an advocate for a moment. Take a step back. It's very hard. We all become so ingrained in our case because that's our job. We have to advocate for our side. And we think we've got a strong case because we've built it up and we're passionate. And this is what we're going to argue at mediation or argue at trial if we have to. But when it comes time for mediation, you don't want to be pigheaded. You don't want to come in with a predetermined, if I don't get this amount of money, forget it. So the best way to do that is to have a real honest reflection of your case. This is going to be decision time. And you don't want to sit there at that time and be like, oh, I don't know. I didn't think of that. Do your homework on values of similar injuries for both sides. Um, look at the strengths and weaknesses you have in your damages case, in your liability case. Think about what could happen if the case goes in as best as possible, what a jury might do or what they might not do. Think about if the case doesn't go in as well as you hope, okay? Look at your damages. Is it all economic? Is there no economic? Do you have hard numbers to, to argue? A loss of income? Uh, medical wages, uh, sorry, medical uh, payments that are due, liens, all of that stuff. What, what do you have as far as hard numbers? What are you looking at as pain and suffering? Pain and suffering, we all know, is very hard to come down with a number on. What's your venue? A broken arm uh, with a rod in it may be worth one thing in the Bronx in the first department that's different in Westchester County in the second department. Think about your venue. How likable is your client? How likable are your witnesses? Uh, that makes a big difference. Uh, one thing I learned from my father, and it's pretty much held true all these years, is that the jury likes your client. Certainly on the plaintiff side, they're going to want to help your client. If they don't like the plaintiff, they're not going to want to help. Uh, and that holds true on the defense side. If you've got a really good defendant, a likable witness, that's going to help. If they don't come across well, that's going to hurt. So size up your client. Does your case have jury appeal? Do you think you're going to really do well with a jury? Really look at the best case scenario. If everything goes well, the jury finds your way, percentages of fault to all your way, go your way. What do you think is really the best case scenario? If you get that verdict and it goes up on appeal to be sustainable and sustainable value. What's your worst case scenario? If liability is an issue, then it could be you can get a defense verdict as a plaintiff. Um, or in the defense side, your worst case scenario may be, you know, you're paying 20 plus million dollars for a paralyzed person, uh, even if you think you've got a good defense on liability. That's going to help you focus in on where this case should shake out. Is it ready for trial? Is it early? I think there should be a discount for early resolution. Uh, I think if you're getting closer to trial, you're paying full value for the case. Uh, and I think generally people will agree with that. So you want to really talk this out with your colleagues, look at it yourself, try and come up with a range. If you think the case is a million dollar case, best case scenario all goes in and 100% liability, then maybe at mediation, you might say, well, there's a percent, maybe we lose and it's a defense verdict and that's zero. Or maybe it's 50-50 percentage of fault, that's 500 grand. So maybe you're thinking about 500 grand as a number. Maybe they award a million for pain and suffering and 50% gets me down to 500 grand. But what if it's not a great venue and they award 500,000 for pain and suffering? Then 50% gets me down to 250. So in that scenario, maybe you're hoping a number around 250 to 500 is a range. Start thinking about these ranges. Don't go in and say, if I don't get a million dollars, that's it. But you need to really assess the value, okay? So you know what you're dealing with when you go in and how to best counsel your client. 
I like to call my adversary before mediation, make sure they know what my demand is, ask them, you know, do they think that uh, the carrier has authority here? Is this something they really want to resolve? Sometimes I don't even get a return phone call when I reach out, but it doesn't hurt, especially if I have multiple defendants. I like to reach out and be like, have you guys spoken with each other? Is one of you waiting on the other to go first? Have you agreed on a percentage of fault? Because I've shown up in cases where I have multiple defendants. They'll say, yeah, we all agree your case is a million worth a million dollars, but nobody agrees it's their obligation to pay it, right? So then you're sitting there, you're like, oh, you're kidding me. I've got the million dollars there, but they're all pointing fingers at each other. And it ends up having to be a mediation for the defense. Sometimes you can avoid these issues when you start making these calls up front. Get your adversaries thinking. Sometimes you have to do that legwork. I was like when defense lawyers say, oh, you've got a lien. Your client has to take care of it on the plaintiff side. That's not our problem. But a lot of defense lawyers know it is your problem because if there is a big lien and we can't settle the case because of it, you need to help us figure a way out. Same way on our side, we could sit back and say, oh, you've got a coverage issue. That's your problem on the defense. You're fighting with each other. That's your problem. But no, it's my problem because that million bucks is sitting there and I'm not getting it from my client. So sometimes I've got to roll up my sleeves and be like, all right, defendant A, have you spoken with defendant B? What's going on? What if you do this? What if you do that? And that helps, really helps. All right. Lastly, in preparing, you want to prepare your client before the mediation. Have a Zoom, have a sit down, explain to your client what the process is, what to expect, that they don't have to give testimony. There's no jury, it's not binding, but it's very important that we be able to make a decision and strike when the iron's hot. And that if we need to come down in our demand or, or get your, we're gonna need your authority. We're gonna need, we don't need you to say, well, I'm not sure and delay the process. We're having this preparation meeting in advance. So we're gonna tell you what ranges we think the case is worth because we've done this assessment. Um, we're gonna tell you ultimately where we think this case should go, the range. I may say in that 250, 500 example, you know, I think on the low end, probably around 250. Um, and I think north of 250, you've got to consider for sure. And 500 or better, I'm going to definitely recommend it. Less than 250, depending how close they get, it's going to be your call. It's your call no matter what, but you know, you could get zero. So it depends. Do you want to wait? Trial's not for another couple of years. Um, everybody's got different things going on in their life. Some say, I, I just want it done. Some say, I need it. I need the money. Some say, I'm happy to wait. Um, talk about the upside. You got to tell them if you do wait, nothing may change other than waiting two years. Um, so you have to have these conversations in advance. And the defense side, you have to have them with your carrier. You have to say, this is a really good opportunity to get this case resolved. So, you know, we need to seriously consider what we can, what we can do here to make this go away. So talk about your recommendations. Make sure your client is ready to say yes, to say no at the mediation. If you have a client that needs someone to help them with this process of deciding whether to agree at a mediation. For example, I have a client uh, coming up at mediation who's in her early 20s and her mom has been involved behind the scenes in all of our meetings and talking about things. And uh, I'm sure her mom's gonna be involved in the decision of whether to settle or not. So we want the mom in in this meeting uh, pre-mediation. We want the mom available at the mediation, okay? So whoever those decision makers are, you want them involved with your client, okay? Even if they're technically not a party, it's mediation. Anybody can participate, okay? Um, all right, so those are all the levels of preparation. I have nine minutes left. Uh, well, I know you're gonna have lots of questions and we can address them in the Q&A. Well, let's talk about the mediation itself. I wanna share with you, and I'm sure a lot of you would like to know sort of what my tips are for a successful mediation. First of all, I'm not a fan of the opening statement. And if you have the opportunity to waive it, I recommend doing so. The opening statement is the beginning of the mediation when the mediator is Mr. Smiley, would you like to give an overview for everybody? Um, generally, everyone's read all the papers. Everybody knows what's going on. And I find that opening statements are more for posturing uh, that lawyers wanna do for their clients. Uh, I explained to my clients in advance, if we have the opportunity to waive it, we will. Um, if there really is something I think it's important to air out in front of everybody, I will. Otherwise, I like to get to the caucusing, to the back and forth. Let's go. Let's get talking because the process can take a while. Um, 
as a plaintiff, of course, you always want to stay high, but you have to show willingness to move. Uh, and a willingness must be reciprocal. Um, I hate it when I come into a case and the offer, you know, most of my mediations on seven figure cases start with like a $50,000 offer and they know it's not going to resolve for that. It's not a good faith offer. And the response is, well, your demand's too high. And my response to that is then make a real offer. And then we go from there. Some people like to move in very small increments. I prefer to move in bigger jumps if possible. You have to feel it out. You have to speak with the mediator. But it's important that you both sides show a mutual willingness to move. If you get to a point where one side is really digging back, then you gotta ask the mediator, look, if they're really digging in here, we're not in that range and we're wasting our time. Uh, or you may ask the mediator, if they're really stuck there, you need to let me know and I'll have some frank conversations with my client. I'll say, listen, we wanted to sell a case for a million dollars, but they're at 75,000 and they're probably not gonna go above 100. Do you want us to keep talking or not, right? I mean, you need to know where you're at at some point and it's your job as an advocate not to, not to sit back in a mediation. Yeah, it's the mediator's job to work hard to try and bridge it, but it's your job as the advocate to give guidance to the mediator, to give mediator an indication of where you're leaning. Never give a bottom line, uh, and a mediator should never ask you for a bottom line. And I was surprised once when I was asked by a mediator last year, well, what's your bottom line here, Mr. Smiley? And I was like, well, frankly, I don't think that's appropriate to ask me that, mediator. Um, I don't have a bottom line, and I don't think that's how we should do this. I think we need to keep working and get it. I can tell you I see this as a case between, you know, north of a million, and I can see this is not going below X dollars, and, and that's where you have to decide how you want to play it. But never give a bottom line is my opinion. Um, sometimes you have to bluff, but you have to be ready to have your bluff called. If you're saying, I'm walking, if they're not willing to at least get into this range, if they're not talking six figures, if they're not talking seven figures, then we're done here. And then the mediator may come back and say, well, I know you said uh, if they're not talking seven figures, but what if I can get you in the high sixes? Or are you going to walk? right? You got to be ready to answer that question. If you've already had to talk with your client and they'd be willing to take something in the high six figures, then you can't walk. Um, but if you've had that conversation with the client and you all feel really strong about your case, then you can walk. Or if you realize that the timing of the mediation is such that if it doesn't settle, the next step, it's the move on the other side to produce something or produce discovery or respond to emotion. You may say at this point, yeah, we can walk. Let's see what happens. Let's see what their clients say at deposition. Let's see what this discovery shows. And then we can always come back, okay? So you have to decide on where you are and whether you want to bluff or not. But be careful, even though the numbers are not binding, ultimately an offer is going nowhere. And ultimately your demand's not going nowhere. A lot of people like to say, my demand is $500,000 today, pay it. If not, it's going up. And the defense says, go fly. And then you say, all right, my demand now is a million dollars. Do you think they're really that concerned? They know you would have taken half a million yesterday. <laughs> You're going to take it tomorrow. You're going to take it in a month. So be careful. You never want to officially drop your demand lower than where you would feel comfortable with it being if the case doesn't resolve. Remember that. Same thing with an offer, okay? You never want to leave an offer on the table uh, that's more than what you really uh, feel you'd want to pay. So your numbers are, even though it's not official, you're going to end up where you end up. So if going into the mediation, your demand is 5 million and there's no offer and the mediation bus with them at 250 and you at 2 million, they're at 250, you're at 2 million. Can anybody change? Can an offer be pulled? Can you change your demand? Of course you can. It's not binding, but in reality, the numbers are where they, where they are, okay? I like to justify my demands, and I like to tell the mediator, I justify my $2 million demand. We've given uh, $1.2 million in economic loss with a life care plan, future income loss, and an economist. Our client has a million dollars pain and suffering injuries in this venue. We've given you settlements and verdict search to show you that. We've justified our demand of $2 million. You know, what's their justification for offering $75,000?
And I push back. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I say, well, they think they're going to win on liability. Okay. But I like to ask that justification question. Don't be passive in mediation. You have to advocate. You have to push. It's tricky because you have to advocate for your client's case and for the mediator's perspective and show you're going to stay where you are to get that number that you want. But on the other hand, you have to counsel your client. And if there is a number that can settle the case and make them happy, that's reasonable. You can't let your ego get in the way of it. And you have to be able to back down. Ultimately, the easy way about that is say, I wouldn't recommend that. But if they want to put that number up and that's all they're going to, I'm ready to walk. But of course, I'll give it to my client and see what my client wants. And, that's, and then you speak with your client. Okay. One of the things some people don't know about and some mediators do and don't that could be effective is what's called bracketing. And I know we only have a couple of minutes left, so I just want to throw this out. Bracketing is, let's say I'm at 3 million and their offer on the table is 150,000. And the mediator, and I'm saying, you know, we're not going under a million. And the mediator saying, well, they're not saying they're going above it. And I'll say, all right, how about you tell them if they go to 600, we'll drop down to 2.8, right? And that creates a bracket. And then you negotiate that. Then they may come back and say, they'll go to 400 if you'll come down uh, 2 million, right? And so it's an interesting way to play because it gets you a little bit closer and you can also negotiate and go back and forth with different brackets. Ultimately, you're always looking at what's the average of that middle number, right? And you're trying to move the dog closer to where you want. So a 600,000, $1.4 million bracket, the middle number is a million, right? Um, a $400,000 million bracket, the million number is uh, what, 400 million, 1.4, 700,000. So you're trying to move that middle number by suggesting brackets. So I will sometimes suggest that to a mediator. Say, how about you tell them, we'll either reduce our demand to X or we'll agree to this bracket if they'll do it. So it's another way to do that. Um, try and get the mediator to feel out the other side. There's nothing wrong with that. Say, listen, I don't want to waste your time. We don't want to waste our time. You know, there's no way at the end of the day that we're going to accept a number of under $500,000. I need you at least to feel out the other side. You don't, I'm not expecting them to give you your bottom line, but do whatever you do as a mediator to feel them out. Because if they're not even getting to that, I don't want to be here all day and going up in increments of $25,000 offers. This is ridiculous. So please feel them out and come back to me and tell me if you think that there's a chance of them going beyond that. And then you can do the same on the defense side. Say, listen, you know, are they really sticking at $5 million? You know, well, we can get close to a million, I think, but, you know, we're going to stay down at 100,000 if they're staying up at 5 million, unless you tell me you think we can get somewhere close. Feel the plaintiff out. So that's another thing that I recommend you do. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD622. Again, that's POD622. Sorry that I went abruptly up to two o'clock. There's just so much to talk about, especially mediation. So I'm happy to talk about it now in the Q&A. Uh, and continue speaking. I'll speak just for a few more minutes, and then I'll address the Q and A's. Um, look, mediation is a great opportunity, and the key to getting the case resolved is to get it on the books, prepare for it, work hard when you're there, be reasonable, be open-minded, and try and get the case done. And um, at the end of the mediation, if the case does settle, then a form is signed. Everyone fills it out. You always want, I always want to address payment, make sure there's no holdups. I always want to address confidentiality, whether that's a requirement or not. Uh, find out about prompt payment, find out who's going to be preparing releases and closing documents and receiving them, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Don't leave there if you have a settlement without having all of these questions answered. And I usually like to ask them before we finally agree. I'll say, in theory, if this case is going to settle for $750,000, um, we'd probably be open to do it, but I need to know that they're going to pay upon receipt and we get a payment within two weeks and now it's not going to get dragged out. Um, can you find out if that's doable? 
And then the media will go back. Yes, they said they can pay, they can cut a check uh, upon receipt, of, and that's usually very fast. Um, so you want to find out all these things. Say, you know, is this something that's requiring confidentiality? Um, some people like to put a premium on that. That usually doesn't work. Usually if it's resolved, it's resolved and usually confidentiality is presumed, uh, but not necessarily. If it's not said, then it's not part of the agreement. So that agreement is all the terms in there. So they can't go back after and say, we're not re releasing the money unless we see a Medicare payoff letter. You can say that wasn't part of the agreement. You said upon closing papers, we're going to deal with so button things up. Don't be so psyched that you've gotten the case resolved. You all sign off and leave. Uh, make sure you take some time at the end of the mediation to wrap it up properly, okay? Um, so the next part of you, we're not staying for the Q&A, uh, is gonna be the trial. I'm gonna focus in on specific things. It's not a trial skills lecture, but it's on how to present things to a jury and deal with certain things and when you're dealing with expert witnesses in a catastrophic injury trial. And that's how we're going to close out this series. The next series is going to start in September. It's going to be how to litigate a construction accident injury case. The labor law, 200, 240, 241 subdivision six. Uh, falls from ladders, falls from scaffolds. People drop stuff that they're hoisting and it injures people, all kinds of stuff like that. So we're going to get through that in the fall. So I hope you'll keep a lookout and register and join me for that series. Um, all right. And if you've been listening on the podcast, thank you for doing so. And uh, this uh, CLE episode will be an episode on the podcast. Also coming up on the podcast uh, within the next two weeks is a podcast I'm doing on referrals. We're going to talk about how referrals work, what it's all about. So if that's something of interest to you, getting referrals, giving referrals, uh, how it all works, uh, that's going to be an upcoming podcast episode. So keep an eye out for that. All right, let's get to the Q&A. I'm going to go through everybody's question and try and answer it, starting at the top. Everyone feel free to jump in on this. I love the questions. Keep them coming. If you have your thoughts, share them here. Um, all right, let's get to uh, Nancy's asking, have I had a plaintiff refusing to sign a non-bodying mediation settlement agreement? Um, no. I mean, I always tell a client, you want your case settled? We're going to mediate it and sign this agreement. It's got to be confidential. And if they don't want it, I'll say, then your case can't be settled. That's ridiculous. So I've never had that happen. Um, and if your client won't even listen to that, um, they're not listening to you. Uh, you've got bigger problems, but you got to explain to a client, this is for their benefit to try and get their case resolved. And it's not binding. They're not agreeing to anything other than not to talk about what's talked about at the mediation. So that's really how you have to deal with it. You can't force anyone. There's no law uh, compelling anyone to sign anything, as far as I know. Uh, Deborah's asking, after securing discovery documents, is it best to mediate before securing depositions or after? Again, it depends on your case, right? I don't really care to take the deposition of a, of a driver who rear-ended my client. That doesn't matter to me, for the most part. Uh, liability is a lock. Um, so, but if they're saying it was all my client's fault and they both had the light, then I'm going to want to do that deposition because I don't, I, I don't want to go into a mediation where they're going to say it's all my client's fault. I want to have the ability of questioning uh, the defendant driver and show areas where I think there was, you know, fault there. So it all depends on your case. You have to decide, do I need this? Um, if my adversaries want to mediate before depositions, hey, you can always mediate again afterwards, right? You know, in general, if your adversary is willing to mediate, go for it, because you can always reschedule the mediation or continue the discussion if it doesn't settle at mediation. Michael uh, is saying, uh, don't lowball yourself in a mediation. Uh, be careful. Uh, yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Michael. And that's what I addressed previously uh, with what your demands are and what your offers are. Even though they're not binding and it's confidential, it's psychologically, we all know what an offer has been and what a demand has been made. So be careful. Uh, Stay high if you're a plaintiff, unless you're getting close. Unless you get into one mediator um, who I worked with in the past says, my goal is to get everybody to the dance. I need you to be at the dance and then see how close I can get you dancing together. I can't get you to the dance. We're not going to have any luck here. So stay high, stay low. But if you get to that dance and you're, you know, there's, you're seeing they're coming to your range, you're getting signals from the mediator that you might be getting in range here. Um, 
that's when you got to start making those moves and, and say, all right, we're, we're going to go for it here. All right. Um, Morris, hey, Morris, what's going on? He's asking uh, in a general liability case, should the defense exposure under a CPLR 411, uh, 5041 in case precedence, present value, funding, all of that be considered? Uh, yeah, you know, definitely. If you're familiar, and, and I won't get down the weeds now, you all can reach out to Morris, but Rule 50B is in essence what happens to a judgment after you get a verdict and a judgment. And sometimes the numbers can get even bigger uh, than what the verdict is. Uh, it's really strange how things are working now with interest rates, how they used to be compared to now. So sometimes uh, if they settle now, uh, they're going to do much better than if they get a, go to trial for that same number, that verdict comes in and 50B gets into play, it could cost them more. So any artillery you have to show at a mediation, look, here's what we're really going to get. Uh, after we're done with all the post-trial calculations. Uh, knowledge is power, especially uh, how the CPLR can affect verdicts, judgments, payouts. Uh, you may think you're getting X dollars from a verdict, but if it's all for future payments, future pain and suffering, you're not getting that all right away. Uh, you're going to get present value. It's, it's not the same as a past lump sum. So you have to seriously start thinking about the difference between a verdict award and what ultimately happens in a settlement award. For mediation to be successful. Arthur is saying he's prepared five-minute videos of testimony uh, of orthopedic surgeons, of liabilities and issue, uh, day in the lives, the pain and suffering, show to the mediator. Um, I like that idea. Uh, when I have a paralyzed uh, client and we do a day in the life video, I always exchange that in advance of the mediation so they have time to absorb it. Um, any stuff like that that you think is helpful and persuasive, uh, instead of saving it for the mediation, I would generally send that in advance of the mediation and then have it queued up and ready for the mediator. This way it's not taking time away. Um, uh, Dr. Cordero, how you doing? He's asking, are there any liens other than Medicare or Medicaid uh, that you have to worry about? Um, yeah, there's all kinds of liens you got to worry about. There's ERISA liens, there's healthcare liens, there's uh, contractual liens. So you wanna explore any and every lien that may be possibly asserted against the case so that you can deal with it at the time. And uh, they can arise during the case. Sometimes you may not know of a lien, it could come out after a case is settled. That's our biggest nightmare as a plaintiff's lawyer. So you have to proactively explore liens. It's your job to do that and find out what's there, what could be there to plan for it because you're not gonna be happy if you settle a case for 300,000 after the third a client gets 200,000 and then uh, they get hit with a $100,000 lien notice that shows up after you've settled the case, your client's not gonna be happy. So you need to take all reasonable steps to avoid that from happening. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Um, happy to discuss more about bracketing. Uh, it's, you know, some years like it, some litigants like it. It has to be the right case um, I usually find it's good in big cases where you're really far apart um, in a big seven-figure type case, uh, you know, where the plaintiffs are at like, you know, five to 10 million demands and the, the defense is like, there's no way we're getting anywhere near that. Um, we want to get this case resolved for under two. Um, then you may want to start doing brackets so that your offers can go up and down. Uh, the best way to do it is you like write them out. You know, you write out 600, 2.5, and always figure out that middle number. That's the key, average the two numbers, and then figure out alternatives. Ultimately, you got to think about, and also know that you're signaling your number, perhaps. So if you're willing to, if I say, yeah, if you go to 600, I'll go to 1.4, that's a signal I'm sending that I'll take a million dollars to settle the case. So be careful about the signal you're sending. Because if you're expecting to get 1.2, don't send a signal of a million. And if you're really bottom line is a million, may not want to send a signal that it's a million. Um, or just stay firm and make sure all your brackets don't go below that center number of a million. Your number may really be 600 and you're centering it for a million to give yourself some breathing room. So, and then you're going to want to see what their bracket signaling. So it's a lot of mediation is message sending as well in your demands and your offers. So there's, there's definitely artistry that goes into play. Um, 
Mark, does mediation interrupt the flow of litigation and closing cases if you have a trial date? I don't think so. I think if anything, mediation I have found, I found it to be rare that a case doesn't settle uh, ultimately when you've gone to at least a mediation. I don't think I've ever mediated a case that ultimately went to trial. I've had mediations that don't settle at the first mediation. They don't settle at the second mediation. Sometimes they don't settle at the third, but ultimately they'll settle at a future mediation. They'll settle by working the phones. It helps sort of clarify positions and issues and gets real numbers being thought about and discussed. Um, so even if one side or both sides walk disappointed, you know, they may speak with the mediator afterwards. Most mediators I find are happy to work the phones. And you can always call up the mediator and say, no, we all walked. Do you think they'd be willing to go to this range? And is it worth a call? And a skilled mediator can feel them out uh, so that you don't look like you're approaching from a position of weakness. But I've never had a mediation negatively affect the litigation. To the contrary, I've always found that it helps zero things in. Um, where the initial 90, Aaron's asking, where the initial 90 minutes of the mediator services are free of charge, what impact does this have on the presentations and negotiations of the party? parties? Hey, Aaron, thanks for that question. So basically, are you saying once the free ride starts to wind down, are people going to be more inclined to be done and say, that's it? We don't want to continue to do this. So <laughs> now we got to start paying for it. I haven't found that to happen. I find that parties will stay as long as they're willing to keep working and it's always worth everyone's contribution to pay for the additional time if it's gonna result in a settlement in the scheme of things. Um, Matthew's talking about a confidentiality clause may have income tax ramifications. Uh, I've heard about that. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about that because I just don't have enough expertise on that. So reach out to Matthew if you have questions about that and Matthew, any more information you can share if you wanna post a case site or CPLR, anything to give the rest of us some guidance, that would certainly be appreciated. Just pop it right into this Q&A. Um, Steve, uh, Andrew, you spoke about letting the defendants know about liens. Some of the biggest hangups in settlement negotiation cases are when the plaintiff has a so-called law cash. A lot of firms refuse to tell the defendants regarding those liens at any time during the case. What's my position? All right, so my position is that uh, a client funding lien, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, plaintiffs may borrow money from companies against their case. And it's usually very high um, interest rates uh, because the, uh, the investing lien uh, funding company is taking a risk that if the plaintiff gets zero, they don't owe them anything. But if they do get a recovery, they've got to pay back. So they'll borrow 100 grand at the beginning of the case, they'll borrow another 25, They'll borrow another 25, then interest is running. Next thing you know, that 150 borrowed is now $250,000 that's owed back. And you're trying to settle a case. Uh, and that's a big number. That's a problem. So yeah, I include that. I let the other people know. I let the mediator know. Um, ultimately, it's really not their problem like a true Medicare and Medicaid lien. Because that private cash funding lien, that's not evidence at trial. That's not a legitimate damage. It's not damages in the case. Whereas a lien, a legitimate lien, Medicare, Medicaid, ERISA, uh, which is based on payments for medical treatment, those are legitimate liens that if you go to court and you're trying a case, you can put those numbers up on the board. You can show all the money that's owed to pay back Medicare from their printout of all the medical bills that were paid, and you can get compensated for that. So as long as you're not trying to put it out there and you're making clear, well, we know this is not an actual element of damages, as a practical matter, um, there's a funding lien. And that's up to you if you want to include that or not. Um, generally, I don't. Generally, I feel that that's just a problem we have on the plaintiff side, and it really is our client's problem. And as a plaintiff's lawyer, you should always be putting on there, taking this against my recommendation, even though you're signing off on the lien. Uh, because it's a real problem and they're getting an advance, you know, and your client, the way you have to say is, look, you got 150 grand already. All right. You know, so don't be complaining that you're not going to get that much more, another 150 and that you got to pay that back because you've had the benefit of the money. You got it advanced to you. I told you that at the beginning, this could be a problem. So it's tricky how to deal with that, but use your judgment uh, on how to just knowing that it's not an actual damage of the case. 
Okay. Uh, Nancy, do I ever view non-binding arbitration as a prelude to trial? So arbitration is always binding. If you agree to have an arbitrator or a panel decide your case, that's going to be binding. Um, non-binding mediation can be done as a prelude to trial. Um, I don't see it as a trial prep, no, uh, to answer your question. I don't go through the process of a mediation arbitration process as a trial prep strategy. I find that that would have no help at all. You're dealing with a jury, not with a mediator or arbitrator. If it's a bench trial and you wanna to go to mediation and get a retired judge's, as a mediator and get the retired judge's take on the case, that's a good idea. Uh, but short of that, I wouldn't do arbitration or mediation to help you prepare for trial. Um, all right, Michael's adding some additional pointers. I thank you for that. Um, Matthew, what if the law cash funding is used for payment for medical treatment? That's a little bit different. Yeah. So if you're funding medical treatment, then you're saying these bills were paid and you're really arguing it as a damage of... Um, of paying back medical bills. Now that gets a little tricky because more often than not, the way that the funding services work with regard to medical treatment is let's say it's an auto accident case and no fault is refusing to pay for the spinal fusion that your client and your client doctor says is needed and related to this accident. And you're telling your client your case isn't worth a lot unless you're having your spinal fusion. And the client's saying, I wanna get my spine fused because I'm in horrific pain and my doctor wants to do it, but I have no insurance. and and no fault's not paying for it. So what do I do? So they could either go on Medicaid and have Medicaid pay for it, in which case there's a lien, or sometimes you can get this patient funding, client funding. So funding company, instead of just loaning it to the plaintiff to enjoy until their settlement comes in, they will pay the doctor to perform the surgery, usually the cost of the surgery at a pretty high rate, uh, not the low Medicaid rate. So the doctors like it, they're getting paid better than they would have anyway, and then that becomes a lien against the case. So technically you could say, yeah, they paid that, that's a medical bill and that's an element of damages. You can argue it that way. If I'm the defense, I'm saying, listen, you way overpaid for that. You chose to go this route just because you made a bad decision instead of filing for Medicaid and having Medicaid or Medicare pay for the surgery that was necessary. You chose to get it funded, it's not really our problem. Um, but you could try it, certainly during mediation, there's no harm, no foul in introducing that. All right, so I think I've gotten through all the questions uh, at, with uh, about nine minutes left. If anybody else has anything else they wanna pop in, um, I am happy to take a look at it. I'll give you a couple seconds, uh, but otherwise, uh, Michelle, I'll let you wrap this baby up and I thank everybody. Uh, and I hope to see you all next month to wrap it up. I hope to see everybody in the fall for how to litigate a construction accident case. And uh, I hope you all keep tuning into my podcast. Lots of good stuff and content coming out in addition to these CLEs interviews. Like I said, I'll be talking about referrals. Uh, I like to pontificate about the state of the world and the law and some other things that uh, you may or may not want to hear. Uh, so thanks for, uh, for supporting that. And uh, see you all next week.